You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. Amen. You can be seated, and if you've got um, little ones up to second grade that you want to send back into the kids' ministry, you can do that now, and their teachers will lead them to their classes. They can head to the back of the room there. And if you're staying here in the room with us, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 9. We're continuing in this series through Genesis. We have uh, just a couple of announcements. One thing is uh, some, some kind of regular stuff. The youth meeting uh, this Wednesday, of course. Uh, what's the time on that? Uh, 6.30 to 8 as regular. And then youth retreat, April 28th and 29th, $25 due. Uh, and, and you notice there's no due date there because it just is due. So uh, <laughs> that's that. Um, and then uh, a couple of things that aren't, uh, aren't as normal. Uh, for one thing, uh, if you don't know Stacy yet, you should. Stacy, will you throw your hand up? There's Stacy. Like, throw it up, Stacy. There you go. People want to know you. All right. Uh, Stacy is planning for a trip to Haiti. Uh, she's a doctor, and uh, so it involves some of that. But of course, the thing that's driving her there is love for the Lord, love for people, and the desire for people to come to know Him. And using her skills, what the Lord has graced her to do for a living, she's using to be a blessing to the Lord and to other people. And so if you know anything about Haiti at all, you probably would know it's a very broken country. A lot of sickness, a lot of lack, a lot of deep need and brokenness. So she's going there, and I don't have all the information for her trip, but she does. And uh, there, there is a way that you could contribute to that and, of course, pray for those needs and just know and, and support uh, what Stacy's doing. So see Stacy if you just want to hear more about that. I'm sure she'd be glad to share those details with you. Um, also, the women are doing an outreach event on May 4th. Normally, their uh, outreach events have something to do with going and serving certain people or certain groups. Um, this time, they're actually taking their uh, monthly time to go and learn about uh, a potential opportunity, which is going to be at uh, Tomball Bible Church. And the organization that they're going to learn more about is some, somebody we've partnered with some in the past, which is called Free the Captives. And that's an organization that is built to free people from human trafficking and to raise awareness for human trafficking. Of course, Houston is the number one city for human trafficking in the United States, uh, which paired with that fact is that we're the most international city in the United States, and those two things are not unrelated. Uh, There's a lot to learn there and a lot of ways that I know the Lord uh, would have us serve. So that's happening May 4th, and if you need to know more about that, you could see my wife, Jenny, or you could see Christian Clausen, They'll get you uh, more information on that. So, all right, I think that's it for announcements. So, uh, let's get into the word here. Genesis chapter 9, we're going to start at verse 18, and we're going to read through verse 29, the end of the chapter. So, if you would, please follow along with me as I read out loud, and then we'll take some time and pray and ask for the Lord's help. Genesis 9, 18. 
The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew that his youngest son had done to him, what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Let's pray. God, please help us. Please help us to understand. Please help us to learn from you. As Matt said, Lord, I just I don't think we could say it any better. The alarming, amazing gift it is that you've set in our laps this morning. Your word, your truth. Lord, please give us confidence this morning that your word is yours that your truth is true, that it matters to us today. And, and Lord, being just real as we always try to be, this, this could seem like a bit of an obscure passage to many of us, and we wonder what in the world would we have to learn from this, aside from maybe just don't get drunk. Uh, Lord, please help us to learn. Please help us to understand what you would say to us this morning about these things. We realize that it's impossible to learn from you apart from the work of your Holy Spirit inside of us to renew our minds, to teach us, to open our hearts to be receptive to you, to make us different, to make us more purely reflect Christ to be changed, to be like him in our character and our desires. So for all these things, Lord, we completely depend on you and ask you for them. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, as I said to the Lord, I I would say to you, I I realize that this can be uh, or come off as a bit of an obscure passage. I think most of us probably, if we remember this passage at all, we remember it as something that we're like, that was weird, and then we just keep going. Uh, and I'll, I mean, honestly, I've done that before, so I'm, I'm with you. I, I realize this is not a passage where you go, mm, let's camp out here, let's just, let's learn, let's just soak this in. Um, but there are things to learn here, profound things, and... And maybe not a million lessons. Like some passages, you know, you read them and you're like, man, it could take me a year to just figure out everything I could possibly learn from this. I think there may be one or two very powerful things 
that we need to learn here. I'm probably wrong. There's probably a hundred. But I know for myself that there are one or two things here that really hit me and hit me where I am and things that I need to hear and need to be reminded of uh, or maybe this morning for some of us need to hear for the first time. It, it wouldn't be a surprise. And so we're going to press in and try to learn those things from the Lord. Um, a quick point, it, it may not be that quick because I'm myself and I take a long time to explain things, but a point from this. I, I want you to notice here um, that when, uh, when all this stuff kind of plays out and Noah is in this place of embarrassment and, uh, and then he begins to speak to his sons and in particular he, he begins to speak about the son of Ham whose name is Canaan. Uh, you may recognize that name Canaan right there because there were the Canaanites who became a big problem for Israel for a long time, right? Um, and, and the Canaanites are named after Can Canaan. They came from uh, his line. And so when this uh, curse is spoken, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to, for his brothers. And then he says he's going to be uh, Canaan, that is Canaan and his descendants, his family, will be servants to Shem and his family, will be servants to Japheth and his family. Uh, obviously, this is a bad day for Ham, but an even worse day for Canaan and his descendants. The curse isn't actually, it is in a way on Ham as much as it is that God would curse my child. That's a curse on me, isn't it? And so Ham obviously would have been brokenhearted, would have been disturbed, and it's a result of his own uh, sin against Noah that this curse comes about and a sin against the Lord, which is, you know, maybe doesn't seem really explicit here in the text, but we'll explain. But there's a point here that needs to be drawn out because there's a dark history behind this passage of the cursing of Canaan, and it's a locally dark history. We live in the American South, and in the American South, this passage was used for a long time to legitimize the enslavement of people of African descent. For a long time, for, for centuries even, people legitimized enslaving people of African descent using this text to try to make it even a Christian thing that people with darker skin who come from African descent would be enslaved. Now, there's just a couple of things that need to be said about this. First, we need to explain why did they use this text to, to promote this enslavement of people of African descent. And secondly, what do we believe the Bible actually says because we don't subscribe to that. So here's the logic that they used. Noah cursed Ham's son Canaan, saying that he should be a servant to Shem and Japheth. Canaan's descendants migrated to northern Africa, which is true. Canaan's descendants migrated to northern Africa. They settled there. Therefore, all Africans are cursed to be slaves of all non-Africans. That's a big therefore, right? Where, like, therefore, that based on what, therefore? Because if you have Canaan cursed as a servant, Canaan moves to Africa. Now, if you want to enslave people 
And you're looking for people who are susceptible and who are vulnerable to enslavement and you want to legitimize the enslavement and ease your conscience on the fact that you know you're going to enslave them anyway, then you can make a really quick jump to Canaan moved to Africa, therefore Africans should be our slaves. Isn't that an easy jump if you want to enslave Africans? Now here's the problem. No. The Bible's primary problem with this whole logic is just, mm-mm, no, mm-mm. And here's why. First of all, Ham had more than one child. And it was all of Ham's descendants who moved to northern Africa. And yet, all of them were not cursed to be enslaved by all non-Canaanites. And so, why isn't it that that all of Canaan, uh, Canaan's brothers and sisters are cursed to be slit. No, it's just Canaan's descendants, but we don't highlight that in the text, the fact that all of them moved to northern Africa. So there are many more African people who are not from Canaan than there are from Canaan. But was there any discrimination about who should be enslaved? Wait, before we enslave you, are you a descendant of Canaan or one of his brothers and sisters? Oh, his brothers said, okay, you're free to go. Oh, Canaan? All right, get on the boat. Why didn't that happen? There's a big problem there, isn't there? Here's the next thing. 1 Timothy 1.10 describes the enslavement of people as being, quote, against sound doctrine. You can look it up. In a list of people who are sexually immoral, who are Uh, liars, who are murderers, who are thieves, and enslavers, that is people who enslave another human being to traffic them, to use their labor for free against, against their will, this is described as being against sound doctrine. So then, do we believe that the Lord has set up a system whereby through the descendants of Canaan, we have free right to enslave them against their will and traffic them for their labor and be doing something that's against sound doctrine. No, the Lord does not set up systems where his people will do things against his doctrine and yet have some kind of uh, exception to the rule. That's just not how God works. There's an there's a alarming degree of, of uh, uh, inconsistency in an interpretation that would cause you to believe that people of African descent should be enslaved based on Genesis chapter 9. It is completely unmerited. It's a completely false interpretation, and it's against sound doctrine. So if you've ever heard this and it's made you go, ooh, that's weird. What, where do you file that away? The fact that people of African... This is where you file it away, as heresy. File it away as heresy and understand that God does not promote the enslavement of people to traffic them or use them up as subhuman chattel for labor, all right? So that's just, that's a bit of a side note, but it's important for us because we've grown up in a Southern American culture where it's part of our history that many, listen, I'll be real with you. Many of us in the room have ancestors who use this passage to legitimize the enslavement of people. And since that's just true of our history, And since it's also true that many of you in the room were being told these things, your descendants were being told these things as a way of legitimizing the fact that you were enslaved, we have to all know we're all in the room together holding up a Bible we all believe in that does not teach 
this heresy. We can hold this up and be united and bound, bound together by this truth, knowing that there's no inconsistency and there's no friction between us because the Bible just doesn't teach those things. Amen? All right. So Noah. Noah here gets himself into some trouble. But before we get into Noah having this trouble, I want to point your attention back, and, and sorry guys, I may not have uh, warned you about this so that you could read it on the screen, but it's easy enough. Back to Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. Now, Noah and his family have been on the ark for a long time, and I know it stunk so bad, and it was so uncomfortable. There was like a long, long time, months of being on this ark, all the seasickness, all the trouble, all of the awareness of the destruction, the judgment, the wrath of God coming on the rest of the world. Every other person on the planet is dead except us in this boat. God is terrifying. He's powerful. He's not to be trifled with. And they get off the boat. And what is the very first thing that Noah does? Verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Noah was faithful. He was faithful. He loved God. He was counted as righteous by God because of his faith in God. But he was counted as blameless in his generation, in a generation of people who were marked by extreme violence and sinfulness. Noah stood out as being different. So before we get into a passage in Genesis 9 about how screwed up Noah was, let's remember that he has a track record of faithfulness to God. And that's going to be very important as we learn from this passage. So just don't forget that. Noah is a man who loved God, enough so that his first activity out of the ark was to build an altar, worship, sacrifice, and praise God. Now, here we are in Genesis 9. We come to verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And now Moses here, the writer, is, is trying to make sure that our minds are linked with Ham and Canaan. So he gives two reminders, which otherwise are totally unnecessary, but later on makes sense. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these people the whole earth was dispersed. Or another way of saying that is the whole earth was populated, because literally this is everybody on earth right now. Verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Okay, that's a problem, amen? That's a problem. Uh, even though it may be uncomfortable because Noah is always portrayed as this uh, for some reason, it's like Noah and Moses. I remember as a child asking my dad, "Did Moses was Moses perfect? Did he ever sin? Because there's this real quick reference to a sin of Moses here or there, but it's really just a couple of things. And otherwise, you're like, 
man, he's like God on earth. Like he just points at things and they change and he says something and all this miraculous stuff is happening around all the time and he was so faithful to God amidst all these people who were constantly unfaithful to God and Noah is another kind of figure who's just like, man, you got this one little reference, but did he ever do anything wrong? Yes, he did. So as uncomfortable as it is to talk about Noah being a person who sinned, Noah here sinned. Now, there's been some attempts throughout history to try to kind of negate the sinfulness of this moment. Like you read verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil. Okay, so he's a rookie gardener and he planted a vineyard. He doesn't know what's growing on these vines and he just ate some of it. Like he stepped on one, it was juicy. Hey, let's get a bunch of this juice. It's delicious. And then it gets old sitting out in the shed and he goes, oh, I forgot this was here. And he's drunk. Oops, accident. No, it wasn't a sinner. It was just an accident. Okay, that's ridiculous. Um, here's why. He was over 600 years old when this happened. <laughs> All right? He was not just some kind of ignorant teenage boy like, what's this? He was over 600 years old, all right? So wily, wise, very learned, understood. He walked with God a long time, okay? Here's another thing. It takes years to grow a fruitful vineyard. Years. Years. He had years of experience with the fruit of the vine. So he would have understood drinking too much of a fermented cup of grape juice can cause a funny feeling. Another thing, Canaan was the youngest of four children born to Ham after the flood. So you've got four children born. That, that's at least years of time that's passed after Noah became a man of the soil. There's just a lot of, a, a lot of intertext, uh, sorry, uh, intertextual evidence here that says this is not like he, he planted something, a week later it sprouted, he drank some of its juice, and he accidentally got drunk. He, he understood here, and he sinned. Also, the way Moses records this, he records it so succinctly that he got drunk and lay uncovered in his tent, and then he doesn't mention it again. In Hebrew writing, the succinctness of that gives this tone of disapproval. Like, we're not going to go on and on. This is what happened. So this can't be read as something that just happened innocently or naively. The fact is Noah sinned, and we need to read it that way, interpret it that way, and it's very important for us as we learn what this text has to teach us that we take it that way. He drank to the point of drunkenness. And then, I don't know if you missed it, but he got so drunk that he became naked. And then so drunk and naked that he ended up passed out. Now, I don't, like, by God's grace, I don't have a lot of drinking stories on my record, but I'll tell you this. If it ends up with you passed out naked, <laughs> it, was, it was quite a night. All right? I don't, like, I'm not going to try to, there's not any more detail than that in the scripture, so I'm not going to try to elaborate and tell you, like, everything that happened or what he was saying or if his sons were like, give dad some space or something. I don't know what it was like other than he was passed out naked. At least he was inside his tent. Now, here's the weird thing. 
we've established, the Lord has established for us. The last time we saw Noah, he was building an altar. He was worshiping. He was faithful. He was counted as righteous. We also remember uh, from the last time we were in Genesis a couple weeks ago that righteousness was credited to him because of his faith in God, not because everything he ever did was righteous. He was a righteous man because he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, which is the same way that any of us who believes God is counted as righteous, not because we always do the right thing, because we always have the right thoughts and our motives are always pure. That's not why God looks on any person and says this person is righteous, but because they trusted God and it was counted to them as righteousness. So Noah was counted righteous in this same way. We know that he's faithful. We know that he's righteous. We know that he loves God. And then here we come into Genesis chapter 9, and we see him, this faithful person, do a very faithless thing. We see a person who loves God do something that is against God. We see someone who who was the head of this family and who loved and led and protected them really well and taught them to love the Lord and trust the Lord do something that is wrong against his family. And the challenge for us here is to reconcile these two things. How can a faithful person do a faithless thing? This, for me, is the primary thrust of this text, that Noah loved God but acted like he didn't, that Noah trusted God but acted like he didn't, that Noah, more than anybody on the whole planet, literally, at this moment, knew the power of God, the rescuing, redeeming authority of God over all creation, and yet subjected himself to the effect of a created thing to find some kind of comfort or enjoyment. And how do you reconcile that this happened? That the Holy Spirit would inspire in Moses, the writer, such a glowing recommendation of his character that he was the head of this one family on earth that God was willing to save and yet he failed so dramatically in this moment. It means faithful people can do faithless things. And it doesn't change your identity as a faithful person, that you do a faithless thing. Why is that important? Well, we're going to spend basically the rest of our time understanding why it's so important to come to grips with that reality that faithful people can do faithless things. That is an integral, foundational, necessary truth for us to grasp if we're going to follow Jesus with any kind of hopefulness. That you can simultaneously have faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and lack the faith in Christ to not do the things that he's told you not to do. Is that not our daily existence? 
I like Jesus, I know you died for me. And I know you died for me, not just so that I would be free from the wrath of God, but also that I would live to God. That my life would be in honor of God. I know that you did these things for me. And today I did 73 things that completely violate the fact that I believe that. Is that not our daily experience? And I don't mean like you shot someone in the face. I mean, maybe. If so, you need to come and confess that afterwards and we'll deal with it. But what about the thoughts of your heart? How many thoughts do we have every single day that completely contradict the fact that we trust God? How about every time we worry? Every single time you worry about anything at all, it's a violation of your trust of God. Every time we get afraid of our lives crumbling and losing their purpose, every single time, it's a violation of the fact that you trust God. But does that mean you don't trust God? This is the weird part about living in this world as a person of God, that you can You can be established in your belief and that's unchanging, unwavering. I don't mean you never have doubts, but God has determined you are his. He's put belief in your heart and he's not taking it out and putting it in, taking it out, putting it in. You're struggling to come to grips with God has made me someone who trusts him. And then living in this world where things are always competing for our affections and our trust and our worship It's hard. It's complicated. Why is it? You see Noah here. Build an altar, worship God, plant a vineyard. And I believe he would have planted that vineyard trusting the Lord, believing the Lord for provision, and then using that thing to sin. Okay, so this is his daily life, his daily life of just provision, of providing for his family, of of following what he believes he needs to do to live in the world in a way that honors God. Here's something that many of us have done. We have gotten married and had kids. Just gotten married and had kids. And we love Jesus, and we trust that our salvation comes by grace from God, through faith in God alone, that it was not any work of our own, that we should boast in it. It was just a gift. We believe all these things and, and, not at some different time, but at the same time, that that belief has not left me. I haven't abandoned Christ. I didn't show up to church and say, hey, look, I need to talk to the elders. I don't believe in Jesus anymore. That never happened. It just, a person who loves Jesus treats his kids like a jerk when they act like normal kids. How can that happen? I I know that you may feel like this is a dead horse that I'm just kicking and kicking and kicking. How is it that faithful people do faithless things? The reason why I'm asking it over and over again in several different ways is this. We don't ask ourselves that question enough. And I believe, truly, I believe what we do too often is this. 
Right now, I trust God. I love him and I'm following him. Oh, I sinned. I'm over here now. I don't trust God. I don't love him and I'm not following him. I'm not even sure I belong to him. I'm not even sure I'm saved. I'm not sure he loves me. I'm not sure he's real. Why? Because you sinned? Because you sinned. You suddenly entered into a completely different type of existence. Brothers, sisters, listen. You are what God says you are. You are who he says you are. And your behavior and your failure to grasp that, apprehend that, and walk daily in that or moment by moment in that doesn't somehow frustrate the will of God or the purpose of God. You're failing to realize it, but that doesn't mean that you are not what he says you are. If you're his, you're his, permanently and perpetually his. I'm not done kicking the dead horse. I'm just going to keep rolling. (laughs) Listen to what 1 John says, chapter 2. He says, my little children, this is John writing to Christians like a father, like like a father in the faith who loves them and is speaking tenderly to them because he knows they love Jesus. My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. We know his purpose. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, he's going to say, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, again, he's going to tell us, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So John is writing a letter to Christians, people who love Jesus, people whose faith is in Jesus, people like Noah who love and trust and follow God. And he gives the specific reason for why he's writing the letters so that they won't sin because we shouldn't sin. We're not okay with sin. But in the very midst of the encouragement not to sin, he recognizes the very real possibility, even the probability that they're going to sin. And is that some kind of concession? Is that some kind of like throw your hands up, wave the white flag, like, hey, look, don't sin. I'm writing this to you so that you won't sin, but I know you're going to, so just forget about it. We just surrender ourselves. We're just sinners. That's what we do. And let me be honest. This is a prevailing attitude. What John didn't mean here is a prevailing attitude in Jesus' church that we're all just sinners. That's why we sin, because we're just sinners. Listen, fam, that's not what we just are. We're not just sinners. He's writing these things to us so that we won't sin. Is When Noah fails... When he plants a vineyard and he drinks too much wine and he knows what he's doing and he gets so drunk that he's naked, passed out on the floor of his tent, was that something that God went, well, (laughs) he's just a sinner. 
Why did his two faithful sons walk in backwards to cover him up and not look at him? Because they knew this is wrong. This, what happened here, is not okay. Why did Ham humiliate his father by running out of the tent and going, have you seen dad? Why? Why did he take this kind of shameful delight in exposing his father? Because he knew this is wrong. This shouldn't have happened. We all know it's written on our hearts. Sinning is not okay. Why do you know that? Because God's not okay with it. And he's called you to something different. And yet, we sin. We sin. This is this crazy, very consistent, biblical rhythm of life that we are who God says we are, but we struggle to understand it and we don't live up to it. Verse 3 says, you know God when you obey his commands. Verse 5 and 6 say, you know you're in him, that is you're in Christ, when you walk in the same way Christ walked. I don't know about you, but for me, if verses 3 through 6 were isolated, I would be in constant doubt of my salvation. Constant doubt. I would always identify with Noah only in his naked drunkenness. Total failure, total just loss of purpose, loss of identity, loss of faith, loss of comfort and security in God. That's where I would, I would always exist if it was only verses three through six that just say, this is the evidence. If you see this evidence, you know you belong to God. But they come on the heels of verses one and two which just like Genesis 9, 18 through 29, acknowledges that people who love and trust God sin. They still sin. The Bible is literally, I don't mean literally like a lot of people say literally. I mean, these words are actually true. Not literally like the quarterback literally carried the team on his back. No, he didn't. That's impossible. He would have been crushed and died. The Bible is literally the most honest thing on earth. The most honest thing on earth. Why was this not swept under the rug? This whole Noah ordeal? What? Why would God allow this to be said? This is my guy. I, I am choosing one person on the whole planet that I'm going to save and rebuild the population on. He is blameless in his generation. He's righteous. He trusts me. He's hardworking. He loves his family. This is my guy. Oh, you mean the naked drunk guy? That's your guy? Why didn't God hide that? He didn't hide that for us. That's why he didn't hide it. Because we're naked drunk guy. We're the guy who loves God and gets drunk and ends up naked and passed out. And people are embarrassed and they're trying to cover us up. We are that. If not outwardly, inwardly, we are shamed. We're sinful. We're failing. We're weak. We don't even understand who we are. We've been given everything, but we live like people striving for anything. We are drunk Noah. But drunk Noah, hey, listen, that's not a knock on you. Because is drunk Noah not Ark Noah? Is this a different guy? 
I know you think I'm just continuing to kick this horse. Okay, what is point two? This is kind of it, guys. This, this is so important to me as a pastor and, and as a Bible teacher, preacher, who you are trusting to tell you things that help you know the truth and walk in it. This is vitally important to me. My heart is bursting with you to know that drunk Noah is ark Noah. That the person who's failing and weak and falling and sinning is the person who built the ark. And God is not looking at him like, who is this guy? He's going, this is my guy. This is my guy. He had a moment. He failed. He was weak. He sins. But he's not just a sinner. He's not identified by his sin. He's identified by his faith. The Bible just doesn't hide the ugly parts because God is intentionally communicating the ugly parts to us so that we can understand. Even when we're living out the ugly parts, we don't cease to belong to him. One of the great heroes of the faith, but spent a few verses looking less like a hero, more like a frat boy. We do this all the time. This thing where we, um, where we take a, a person in the Bible and we really identify with them when they're walking in righteousness, but then when they fall, we're like, what in the world? How could you? It, if, I think if you're being honest, you either this morning or at some point in the past when you read this text, you were like, God saved you and your family from a global flood event in a boat so big that it defies understanding, filled with all of these animals, these creatures. How did it all work? God rescued you from his wrath. You built an altar, the pleasing aroma, the, all this blessing poured out on you and security of belonging to God. And then you do this. How could you do that? We do this all the time. We do it with Israel in the desert. God led you through the Red Sea to deliver you from slavery in Egypt. And as soon as Moses goes on top of the mountain to meet with God, you build a golden cow to worship. How can you do this? Be honest. You've had that feeling, right? You walked through the Red Sea on dry land. How could you do this? We do it with King David. God has made you king over your people. He's given you victory in every battle. You're rich. You're powerful. You're at the top end of the food chain in the most powerful nation. He's covenanted with you to establish a descendant on your throne, a throne that will last forever. But you put out a hit on a friend of yours so that you could have his wife? You're the king. How could you do this? We do it with the apostles. You've been personally discipled by Jesus. Personally discipled by him. You've witnessed numerous miracles, inexplicable outside of the power of God visiting earth. Mind-boggling stuff but you're arguing over who's Jesus' favorite and you're falling asleep at prayer time? 
If Jesus shows up and calls a prayer meeting, how many of you are falling asleep? How many of you are like, oh, I'm just sorry. I was up at like six this morning. I missed breakfast. I, sorry, Jesus. I won't do it again. Don't you just think that seems impossible? It's Jesus. He's in our prayer meeting. Like, are we going to pray like this? Or are we just going to talk to Jesus? Isn't it insane? But we do it all the time. We do it all the time that we want to identify with a person when they're walking out this righteous life, but then we want to create some distance when they fail. And again, the reason why I'm pointing it out is that there are two things all of these people have in common. Noah, King David, people in the desert, the apostles, what do they all share? Two things. They're all deeply flawed people who sin, and they were mightily used by God to establish and advance his kingdom in the world. Not but. Not sometimes they were this and sometimes they were that. They were both flawed people who sinned and people God used mightily to establish and advance his kingdom in the world. Now, for those of us who are in Christ, who are righteous in God's sight, not by our works, but by grace, through faith, what do we share with them? We know we're flawed people who sin. We know we share that with them. But do we also believe that we are people mightily used by God to establish and advance his kingdom in the earth? Do we believe that? Do we believe that when we're nailing it and then don't believe it when we sin? Or do we believe that we are both flawed people that God is using? Noah was a person who was flawed and who sinned and who God used. Easy to see how God used Noah, right? He started the whole population of the earth over with Noah. Noah taught his children to follow God, to trust him. There was this faith in God established in the one family on earth who populated the earth. That's good for the Lord's name. It's easy to see how God used Noah. Is it as easy to see how God is using you? A flawed person who sins, who trusts God but doesn't always live like it, who loves God but doesn't always live like it, who wants to obey God but fails so often to, it's not as easy to see because you're not this kind of like biblical figure, this hero of the faith. You feel like, I mean, I'm just me. Sometimes I wonder if God even notices me. I wonder if when I speak to him, my voice gets drowned out by other much more righteous, much more faithful people, more obedient people. This is where it gets really real, really quickly for us, right here at this point. Do you think that your sin disqualifies you from walking with God and being mightily used by him? Do you think that? Like even if somebody wouldn't say, what's your theology on this issue? You wouldn't be like, mm, let's see. I think that my sin disqualifies me from being used by God mightily to establish and advance his kingdom. Done. You wouldn't write that down, but in your heart of hearts, when you sin, are you more reluctant to go to God and pray because you feel ashamed? You feel like God's so disappointed in you, he doesn't want to even talk to you right now? I cannot believe you. 
You come back to me when you've made up for that. Do you believe that somehow your past sins have made it just too late for you? Man, I wish I was one of those people who grew up in a Christian home, whose parents loved God and taught them to because the fact that my parents didn't know God and didn't help me at all led me down this path where I sinned so egregiously, so shamefully that I know God is just like, well, look, I'm going to let you sneak into heaven, but I'm too embarrassed to use you publicly. So you just hang out over here in your heart of hearts. Do you sometimes fall into this way of thinking that it's too late, that God's too embarrassed by you, that you're either a righteous person who loves and trusts God or you're a sinner. The fact that this happened in Noah's life, I believe, is a resounding exclamation from God that he is not only willing to use broken people who sin and who trust him but don't always live like it, he's not just willing to, like reluctantly, like, well, this is all I've got to work with. God is eager to. He is eager to use broken people who really screw stuff up, who don't seem like they belong in the story. Couldn't you have found someone who didn't end up naked, drunk, passed out on the floor of their tent? having to be covered up by their children of all people? Couldn't you have found someone like that? God is eager to use Noah and point out his failure. He's eager to work through wandering in the desert Israel. And he didn't hide the fact that they didn't always trust him, but they were his. These are my people. I've called them out and set them apart for my namesake. Yes, they fail, they fall, they wander, but they're mine. He didn't hide David's sin. He disciplined him and highlighted it to show his mercy, his grace. He wasn't ashamed of his disciples. These people who were called out by him, Jesus just said, follow me, follow me. But he didn't just mean walk behind me, did he? He mean, like John says, much, much later as an old man in his letter, walk in the way he walked. That's what Jesus meant when he said, follow me. He meant, live like I live. Come with me. But did they always? No. They did less of that than they did of looking like people who's like, these are your disciples? Have they learned anything in three years? You've been leading them up to this moment of the cross and then when you die for their sins, they're like, ah, and they're running and hiding and locking themselves behind closed doors. And then when you raise from the dead, they're like, nah, nope, can't believe it. These are his disciples? Was he embarrassed? Did he have a plan B? Did he figure out something else when he realized like, man, these people, I can't tell if they're with me or not. No. He tells us all about their failures and what is the constant thread running through sinful, broken people who just trust God. What is that thread? The grace of God. Constantly. The grace of God, tying it all together so that people who sin and are flawed and are broken and who forget him, 
but who have had faith deposited in them that they would continue to play their part in this story of salvation that God has been writing since the beginning of time and that you, you person who loves Jesus, you have been invited into this story to play your part and nobody else has your part. We all together play the part of the church and each one of us with our gifts, with our passions, our desires put there by the Holy Spirit are working out our salvation to honor and glorify God and we will fail, but God loves us in our failure. And our failures don't somehow derail us from the plans of God. Do you see anything here where God was like, okay, I know I said I wasn't gonna flood, so I'll do a fire. Did he say that? Like, man, this, this is my family? This is who I started over with? It'll be a great wind or something, and everything will just blow off on the earth, except for one other person. Who's the next person? He didn't do that. God had purposed to use Noah in this way. Noah couldn't stop him. Not even in his sin. He couldn't stop him. So his nakedness is covered when he, quote, awoke from his wine, which is just not a situation I'd ever want to be in. He realized that Ham had humiliated him. And then you see that this, is, uh, this has all been prose. This has just been narrative prose. And then you can see that it's set apart here, right, in the text. If you look it's set apart. Why is that? Because anything set apart like that is, is meant to stand alone, usually as poetry or as song. And, and the, the Lord is inspiring here something that is meant to be effective, effectual. It's going to happen. Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. And we just kind of unceremoniously move on from Noah. Isn't that weird? Oh, this great testimony of his faithfulness. And then he gets drunk and he's embarrassed and he curses some people and blesses some other people and then he lived a little while longer and he died. There's something hauntingly unceremonious about that. But again, we're not more than Noah. We're not less than Noah. We're people who live, who God has purposes for, and then we die, and God uses other people, and we have a legacy left behind us. And don't you pray, don't you seek to leave behind you a legacy of faithfulness? Not so that people would even remember your name, but they remember the Lord's name. But because of your life, people would know and follow Jesus. That righteousness would continue in the world through discipling your children, through discipling your neighbors, your co-workers, some of y'all, your parents. 
that behind us, people would say, man, this happened. Kind of feels like the highlight in these ways that God set this person apart and they followed him and trusted him. This stuff happened too. It was messy. It was weird. It was embarrassing. Man, I... I I, I knew that he loved God or I knew that she trusted God, but there was this weird season where it didn't feel that way. But you know what? God used that too. And then they lived for this amount of time, you know, and, and they walked with God and they had a bit of a limp, but they knew where it came from and they learned through it and then they died. That's a glorious, glorious testimony but it sounds really normal, doesn't it? Isn't that the shocking part of it? It sounds so normal. When you just step back and sum up Noah's life, some good stuff, some bad stuff, loved God, trusted him, he died. It just sounds so normal. It's because it's meant to. Because he wasn't exceptional. God is exceptional. Exceptionally powerful, exceptionally forgiving, exceptionally patient, And we are his. We belong to him. Paul, who knew what it meant to grievously fail and to trust God and love him, said this, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Inherent in that text is the fact that you need to be saved from your own sin. Jesus died for us to set us apart and live his life through us. And our lives now are meant to just be a demonstration of the grace of God. I want to leave something just ringing in your ears this morning. I hope that it doesn't ring hollow. I hope that these words stick to your soul and have an effect. You are a flawed person who sins and you are a person set apart by God to be used mightily to establish and advance his kingdom in the earth because of your faith in Christ, not because you're awesome. Because of your faith in Christ and any other kind of qualifying factor you put on that because of fill in the blank has to be repented of. It is because of your faith in Christ. So with that, I commend to you to walk with confidence, to walk with passion, to walk without fear, to walk with love, knowing that this truth is true no matter how untruly you walk in accordance with it. You may fail and forget but it's because of God that it's true, not because of you. Let's pray.
Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.